Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Tobias Wright. We're live on 89.3 FM WNUR, Evanston, Chicago. All right, now look, you want your voice heard, right? 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? We have a big, big story tonight. Call us live on air, 847-866-9687. We're also streaming live on wnur.org slash pop up. All right. Over the weekend, Opera Land was rocked when three separate public allegations of sexual abuse were leveled against famed conductor James Levine. He's since been dismissed from his position as music director emeritus at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. And also tonight, Michael Rice, the disgraced godfather of opera podcasting. Wait, no, sorry. The creator of the Opera Now podcast. There we go. Joins us live from New York with his take on this story. And then at the bottom of the hour, I play Monday evening quarterback and review last week's Met in HD encore screening of Thomas Addis' opera The Exterminating Angel. Plus, later, it's the two-minute drill. You get all your opera headlines from the past week and our hot takes on them. That's about 9.45 p.m. This is going to be a big one. Get your popcorn ready. Oliver Camacho. Did you introduce Tobias Wright? Tobias Wright. <laughs> Did you introduce Oliver Camacho? Okay, okay. Hey, Toby, welcome back. It's great to oh, have guys, you back here. It's so good to be back. I love you both. Mm-hmm. And George, your beard looks incredible. I rocking the beard here and rocking the fro and just a whole bunch of hair everywhere. Nah. <laughs> um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna catch up later in the show, Toby. Let's talk some opera right away. Chalk talk on opera box score. This story started to come out uh, late Friday night, early Saturday morning. And, well, it's funny, actually, Oliver, you and I were putting the show together, and we were saying, uh, you know, this was Friday night, we were like, what are we going to do for the show? It's kind of a quiet week, and Oliver says, ha ha, he says, let's wait to see if a big story breaks <laughs> over the weekend. I forced this, I told all the, the, the victims that I know, I said, could you please, like, do something about it this week? We need a story for Opera Box Score. <laughs> and boy, did they help out. Hey, uh, joining us from New York, Michael Rice. Hey, everybody, uh, do I, I say that I don't want to lie to the listeners. I am currently in Long Beach, California. I've since oh, relocated. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, correct. How well, how is it out in Long Beach? It's probably colder there than it is here. 
as a, it is. I, I've gotten spoiled by the, the, the warm days and the, and the chilly, chilly nights. But, has, but you know, I, I said, as I am disgraced. <laughs> um, all right. We could also. I, I will say, just to be fair, to, to, to take my point out there, I, there were spurious arguments against, against me, which is why I retired from podcasting, but I plan to now tweet about Hillary Clinton's emails <laughs> constantly to uh, try to uh, change, the, change the story, so to speak. And I also should announce that uh, I have stepped down as uh, co-host of Opera Now Podcast. Um, Enterprises, Inc. <laughs> yes. Before... Due to lack of shows being happening. <laughs> but just... Uh, to... you're, you're, you're still not co-host. You're just creative consultant. One day, <laughs> will promote you. Key to the executive washroom and all that. I guess, yeah. Where do we begin on this James Levine story? It seems like moving chronologically through this might be the easiest way to talk about it. And the article first was in the New York Post... That bastion of... Yes. Yeah, it's right. almost as reputable as Slip Disc. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what it said was, quote, legendary Metropolitan Opera conductor James Levine molested an Illinois teenager from the time he was 15 years old, sexual abuse that lasted for years, and led the alleged victim to the brink of suicide. The dateline on that was December 2nd. That was Saturday afternoon. Since then... Uh, three other men have come forward and spoken about uh, being sexually assaulted. Uh, their ages at the time of the abuse ranged from 15 to... 20. 20. Yeah, 20, yeah, 20 was the most recent one, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that, that, was, that was the allegation that came out this evening, correct? Yeah. That's right, yeah, the uh, Michael Cooper article in the New York Times. Uh, all of these abuses, I believe, took place at the Meadowbrook School of Music, which is in Michigan. I think that's near the... Detroit. No, but one happened at Ravinia. Uh, thank you. Yeah. That would be the exception to yeah. the rule. Yes, the that, that was the original um, silent, or uh, he wanted to have his name withheld. He was the first. He was the one who filed the suit in Illinois last year in October. Exactly. It kind of set everything running. Exactly. And Michael, tell us a little bit more about the, the sequence of events there. Well, apparently there, there was someone who came forward in October of 2016 who said that he was living in Lake Forest at the time. He was 15 years old. And he, I, like, Pai is his last name. I, I don't recall his first. I, unfortunately, somebody referred to him as Ajit Pai today on NPR. <laughs> I thought, no, that's, that's the FCC. That's the net neutrality guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ashok? Ashok? Ashok Pai? Ashok, okay. okay. Thank you, Toby. Uh, and so he, he filed this uh, report with the police in, in Lake Forest in October of 2016, uh, alleging that, that um, Levine, in, he was a young musician and his family would bring him to Ravinia and Levine got close to him and engaged uh, initially in kind of a mentor-mentee relationship and then proceeded to step beyond those bounds and, and happened apparently hundreds of times according to him, mm -hmm. according to the accuser. And, and I say this because, you know, these are allegations. Whether or not, as to the veracity of them, I think given just the world I've been living in right now, and certainly for the last 43 years. I mean, I wasn't sentient of all that at the time, but 
we are in a larger institution. We're on a network. We're live. So these are allegations. Although I think there's a lot to say uh, to be said about the veracity to them, uh, get, given what we've known kind of over the years and kind of the the, the, the back chatter and the rumors and the. I mean, I, when this broke, I, I said to myself, you know what? I, I've been a lot. I've been a grown man for 23 years, and there have been no allegations of of uh, pedophilia or any type of untoward behavior at any time. So there's something to be said for kind of, and especially we found that out now with what has happened with Weinstein and, and Lauer and Charles Rose and Louis C.K. Uh, you know, there's, well, we, we can go into this later on, but, but to, to cut this short quickly, the, the timeline, he, he filed this case, it became, uh, the, the Met became aware of it in October of 2016. And they asked James Levine, and he denied it, and they, Gelb, Peter Gelb, the uh, general director of the Met, said that they were relying on the work of the police, and you know nothing happened. So we're going to get to that uh, later yeah. on in the segment as well. When you look at the way uh, Levine was talked about, is talked about in the business. When you look sort of historically. Um, it seems like there's a there's a pattern here, right? And and people who were in the know, and this man was at the Met for forty odd years. Toby, what was the phrase that that you had brought in earlier? This story that a, a friend of yours had told. Um, oh well, the 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 term that I had heard uh, used about some of the, and this was used about younger singers who had gained favor um, at the Metropolitan Opera um, with whom. Maestro Levine, um, it, who, they enjoyed a fruitful relationship and that they were hired repeatedly. They got, you know, they got great employment and obviously were at the Metropolitan Opera and they were referred to as Jimmy's Boys. Um, and that was one of those things where it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing when I learned about it because it was from a singer who had sung there and who had a great relationship with him. And I don't know, I say he had a great relationship and I say that because he never shared that anything inappropriate had happened for him. But when he was young and was hired at the Met... Um, that's what he told me. He's like, you know, I was one of Jimmy's boys. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he just, it was a, a nod that was, I, I guess to me, it said all it needed to say and that it was an inappropriate relationship in, in some capacity or that it was a flirtatious relationship or that he gained favor because he was handsome, because he was talented and because James Levine was attracted to that. Not necessarily based. happens at every opera company across the... Every across. opera company, right. Mm -hmm. So, so in, in my mind, that didn't raise a red flag with me because it wasn't a 15-year-old, um, you know, and we, I guess if we can quote this in the New York Times, being masturbated by James Levine. So it wasn't, to me, I didn't take it as something that was uh, sexual harassment or abuse. Um, and it didn't seem like an allegation of that. But he said, you know, for years there was, you know, if you were young and had favor with James Levine, you were one of Jimmy's boys. Well, you know, what are the th if I can just the thing that struck me about this and has always struck me about this certainly at when Weinstein, when uh, Harvey Weinstein, when that came out and Spacey, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, how long is it until something happens with James Levine? Mm. And so the situation here is, and I think it's important in terms of, you know, these rumors have kind of circulated for year, for years and years, and people who didn't even know much about opera, but maybe knew about the Met and knew about James Levine, had heard a joke or a story about this. And if you contrast it with something like, like the Matt Lauer, the Charlie Rose, the, the Louis C.K., these are situations where 
professional adult women were in situations with these men in power or men approaching them, and they were, you know, these lewd, horrible things happened to them. They were put in these horribly uncomfortable situations. In some cases, like with Louis C.K., he would masturbate in front of them. In other cases, you know, probably sex was forced upon them. And for whatever reason, they at the time felt powerless to say anything about it. And I completely understand that. But they were able to talk among other professionals, colleagues within that world. This happened to me. They told family. They told friends. With a situation like this, with Levine, with these accusations, especially when the men were underage, you know, this is happening very much one-on-one. You know, a, a, he's a... a these type of people, whether or not he is one, is their predator. They prey and they take on this mentor-mentee relationship. And when something happens, when an incident occurs, they probably don't say anything. They're embarrassed, they're confused, and they certainly don't have the ability to, and they're not within the network of opera, to kind of spread these rumors. Because there are people with an opera, there are womanizers, there are people who are abusive, who are professionals, and, they, and they, they, they prey on, you know, grown adults. But in this case, these are children who don't have any access and, or any way to kind of have these stories spread, which leads to the larger question that I have in my mind in terms of, and we'll talk about this later, George, I'm sure, the, the problem that the Met is going to have, because then it becomes a question of how complicit were they possibly with this? Exactly. That is that is exactly my question. That is the only way a story like this spreads like this, because people on the board, people within the company, they hear possibly about a payoff. They hear about someone coming. Was it at Cleveland early in his day? Somebody make a complaint. Was it at Ravinia? Um, was it at the Met? Certainly. I mean, Boston was much later in his career. Um, I, don't, I don't know. That's a thing that I know that these are allegations, uh, but... It, it has just been around for so long, and there's no way for these stories to circulate among a group of 15- and 16-year-old boys unless it, somehow it reaches the level of, of the people who are in power within, this organ, within, within the world. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM talking about the accusations against James Levine over the weekend. We talked about the past. Let's talk about the present. The Met released... Levine from all of his conducting duties within 48 hours, if not faster, after these allegations came out. Uh, in my opinion, obviously the right decision. Was there any other decision the Met could have made other than getting rid of Levine as soon as they possibly could? Well, their first statement was sort of like they were hedging a little bit, like they were, you know, they didn't come down really decisively. I think it was their second statement where they said, like, okay, we are now releasing James Devine from his contract or, you know, moratorium on him or whatever, however they said it, you know. But at first, the first thing they said was, like, we are investigating, you know. Like, I wonder what is, what is an investigation at the Met look like? Do they have, like, opera police, you know, with, like, the Carbonari from Italy, you know, like, with their mustache, a <laughs> little, the little, like, sticks and stuff they like that? They go to the costume department <laughs> yeah. and they get eye patches. Yeah. I mean, I, what they need is an external, um, someone who is completely removed from the situation to investigate this, I think, because this is real. I mean, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I don't have any, 
inside knowledge, but this just reeks of of cover up. Yeah. 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 Of, well, because at the end of the day, you know, the allegations are of statutory rape, and that's that's a criminal allegation, is it not? And so it's, and that granted didn't happen at the Met, but if it is an institutional thing where there'd be cover up for years, you know, then everybody's complicit. And then I think well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. What does that mean for the Met now, or in the future? I guess, but. The article in the Times says that uh, uh, Mr. Gelb said, quote, that the Met had appointed Robert J. Cleary, a partner at this uh, law firm, uh, to lead an investigation. So they they got rid of line and they they got this lawyer going right away to try and figure out to get to the bottom of this. The parallels between Trump appointing Mueller and Gelb appointing Cleary to me are just so clear. Well, that's the thing. I I mean... You can't, he can, they can say that they're doing an investigation. But as I said before, these rumors don't spread among, you know, a group of 15-year-old, 16-year-old boys. These rumors spread because people who are in the know and people who are in power possibly had something to do in terms of turning a blind eye or, or even possibly, you know, payola or, you know, paying people off, settlement, things like that. I just don't understand how these rumors could spread if, that is, if people who, who knew better and were in a position to be able to, to fire or to, to, to report something to the police. I, I just I don't understand how it's possible without that. And that's why I think, and, and you said we were talking about it in, 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 later in the show, this does not bode well for the Met. Whether it's, I mean, it's not going to be criminal because oftentimes this, there's a, a statute of limitations that has expired on these things. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are rife for civil suits, and uh, and you know they're in a precarious position as it is. And uh, I don't know. And it goes back, I think, for years. No, to the eighties or the seventies, oh, like oh yeah, Gelb. This is like potentially Volpe, and and members of the other members of the board, and um, and uh, Gelb is acting like he's never heard of this until last year. It's like oh, really? <laughs> gambling going on here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the uh, Times article quotes this. 1979 letter from uh, Anthony Bliss, who, yeah, the Bliss letter, who was then the executive director, um, who uh, said in this letter, we don't believe there's any truth to these charges. Those charges were of a singer against Levine. I mean, this is endemic. It is repetitive. Well, it also looks like he wasn't just targeting singers. He was targeting you know, people in the orchestra, and there's one, I think, published account, maybe it's in the New York Times article, of, like, a violinist or a viola player, you know, who was being groomed. And, but I've there's also these stories that are not published that, that you hear about, like, some tenor who got some role in a show and nobody could believe that that tenor had the, you know, th- th- was prepared to do something like that and, you know, was, was on the stage of the Met, maybe even like on a broadcast or a recording. It's like, why this person of all people? Why him, you know? And it leads to the kind of the speculation about like the Jimmy's Boys type of thing that you were saying before, you know? Well, that, but that, theoretically, though, that's a different thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that intrinsically. If he, you know, likes somebody and for whatever reason, and, and he, they give him, I mean, there was a story of the relationship he had for years in the 70s with the tenor. Um kind of a, one of the rare African-American tenors. Uh, and look, that, that's one thing, but there's a lot of other rumors about and stories and now four allegations about criminal behavior that uh, is 
that's the troubling thing. It, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't belong on the Met stage because they don't sing that well. We're getting into something, you know, intrinsically deeper, which has just been a, a this like this cancer in in society for years. Whether it's women, whether it's children, it, it's just I because I, I, mean, I uh, I've thought back about my life. You know, when all this started to happen, and I thought to myself, Oh my God, what did you I, panic? I, you know what? I didn't panic because I, you know, I think you know I, what I was generally afraid of women. So if anything that happened. It probably happened because they were interested, but it, it I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it really, it, the, the sponge needs to be put upon the windowsill. Hashtag that. <laughs> Beautifully <laughs> put. <laughs> hey, we're going to step aside for one second. It's George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and back in the studio, Tobias Right along with Michael Rice. After the break, more Chalk Talk as we predict the future of the Met in the light of James Levine's recent dismissal. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Today. Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George Tobias and Oliver. Opera Box Score is what you're listening to, WNUR. Big news story over the weekend, James Levine, uh, one of the most conductors in the world, in this country. Famous conductors. A long tenure at the Metropolitan Opera. Allegations of sexual assault and sexual abuse coming out of right field and left field and center field and... Keeping it sports, George. I like it. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was that was all for you. Thank you. Oliver. <laughs> We're hanging out with Michael Rice as well. Uh, let's talk about the future then. We've talked about the past. What happened? We've talked about the present. What is happening in this moment? The big question I think here is what is next for the Metropolitan Opera House? There's some other organizations that Levine was connected to. We'll get to those in a second. Michael Rice, what is your take on how the Met, over the next months and years, reacts, responds, recovers, maybe, from this? I think that right now it's very bleak. Uh, You have, you know, an organization that has, you know, been on very precarious uh, financial standing of the last couple of years that had big deficits that they've had to go to, um, you know, more and more donors for, you know, the ticket sales have been up a little bit this year, but it's still pretty low as opposed to the, you know, compared to the high point. Uh, and, and I think something like this, especially given the current environment in the short term is something that could kill them. And a bad reaction in the short term will destroy something like an opera company when they don't have that revenue kind of coming in regularly, either through ticket sales or donations. Uh, I think there's a larger question of, and and people legitimately have it, I think, in terms of to what degree has the company been aware of, of this behavior? And 
did they turn a blind eye to it? So I think it's really, really bleak right now. I mean, there, I don't know, I don't have a, I, I mean, I remember I said when City Opera decided to close down to, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to re renovate the theater. It'll be great. We'll be closed for a year. We'll go around the neighborhoods. And, and then they shut down. I said, you know, if, if you're gone, you're gone. And uh, I, I just, I worry. I genuinely worry because I don't want them to fail. I don't want Peter Gelb to be fired. I mean, a lot of people, you know, go well, Why do you say Gelb that? And, why don't you think he should be fired? Well, I, I don't want Peter Gelb to be fired based on the work he's done. Everybody screams at Peter Gelb, and they, they, they think he is the reason for the Met being, you know, kind of in the kind of precarious state they are right now. Uh, but, but it is that thing where it, it goes deeper than him. It goes back 20, 30, 40 years. Right. Maybe he becomes the scapegoat. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of the investigation and, and what's on earth. I think that's more interesting uh, because cause that's going to have a direct effect, certainly, on, on the future of the company. If, 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 if it turns out that there are people who knew or people who got paid off by the board oh or boy. by somebody where it was quashed, then they are. <laughs> oh, man. Goodbye, you. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's lights out. Tobias, what do you think? You, you with Michael on this one? Is, how, how bleak is it in your book? Well, you, you know, we talked a little bit about um, other industries in which this has happened. You know, Hollywood, or the, we're a sports talk radio show, and so we talk about what happened at Penn State um, and Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno and the cover-up there, the institutional cover-up of uh, child rape allegations um, that people went to prison for, that people lost jobs for, and the ramifications were, you know, it's that their subject, that, that's a sports team subject to being governed by the NCAA. And so they had scholarship restrictions. They lost it. Uh, they were no longer allowed to be on television. Uh, the team couldn't play in bowl games, right? And so there was a financial hit to the university because whether we like to admit this or not, <clears throat> football makes money for colleges, right? But you turn on your television now, and that was well, uh, five years ago. 2012 was when the allegations, when, when that all came out. But you turn on your television now and you look at Penn State and there's still 100,000 people in the stands every Saturday screaming their heads off in Happy Valley. And that's because the product is still something that is viable. They still want it. And so I look at the Met and I think opera is still going to be opera. And people, and yes, there have been the financial struggles and the Met probably is a little too big for its britches uh, with how many tickets they have to sell for every show and then having as many shows that they do. And I understand that, but... As far as is the Met going to shut down because of this, I really, really don't think so. Now, if they have to rebuild internally, which I think probably could be a very distinct possibility, and if Peter Gubb loses his job over this and that causes a restructuring, well, then to me, that's for the good. Um, and there will be struggles if that is to happen, but I don't think ultimately that the Met is going to have to close the stores based on uh, this story that's breaking and evolving because I don't think this is the end. I think there's going to be many more people. I think we're going to hear a lot more um, information come out and it's probably going to get a lot uglier before it gets any better. Um, but I don't think that opera is going to die um, at Lincoln Center in New York City. I really don't believe that that will happen. If, if I can just, to, uh, not a rebuttal, but just, I mean, the, the thing I... Oh, please do. I will argue with you. It'll be fun. Oh, yeah. I'm it's kidding. Opera, <laughs> um, you know, Penn State has deep pockets. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the Catholic Church scandals have come out, come to light over the last year 
the Catholic Church, they're not the, I mean, I think the Queen of England, actually, I have to go back on something I said. The Queen of England is the largest landholder, but the church is one of the largest landholders. They have very deep pockets. I don't think the Met, as it is right now, can weather any kind of storm. They mm-hmm. can't weather a year. They can't weather, I mean, Penn State, it's been five years. They have endowments. They have people, they have people you know, screaming they love Joe Pa when he didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't, I worry, and I, I worry. I don't think they need to die because of this. I'm not coming out. I mean, if there are people involved, it's horrible, obviously. And it, it's an, I don't want the institution itself to die because of it. But I worry that they're not going to be, get, be able to get anybody to, to, to donate or come to see shows. Yeah, and, and you know what? The, the, the Met cannot weather things the way that the Catholic Church has been able to, or that Penn State has been able to. They don't have the, the financial wherewithal. Mm-hmm. And perhaps my opinion on it is is one that, you know, I I am a young person who loves opera and I want to see it live, so I want the Met to survive. Oh, so do I. I right. want the Met to survive too. And you're not a young person, Michael. I, I'm an old man. Well, no, I'm. what I mean by that is I'm in the I, infancy of my opera-going life, um, and I'm all, you know, roses and unicorns about what opera is and what art is and so i i guess i'm a little bit optimistic i'm optimistic that there are people like me who will become the patrons who will ensure that it lives um and i but will, will it live over the course of the next year and a half that's the problem. right 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 because no i'm not doing i'm not i'm not doing my i wanted my podcast to die but i didn't i don't want opera to die <laughs> so it's, it's a question of it's like just it's just like a realistic look at can they handle this? Can mm-hmm. they weather this storm? Because this could be really, really, really bad. It could be. You know, could the Met survive in its current form? No. I, that is clear. But if this company had to rebuild itself, if it had to program differently, if it had to work on a different scale with different types of artists, would that necessarily be a bad thing? Surely the singer's who are currently at the Met would wash their hands of it and go to San Francisco, Houston, Chicago. A redistribution of the wealth? Yeah, but, but again, that's the question. Where do they go? They're, it, it's not the Met anymore. It, it, I mean, we, we saw with City Opera, they couldn't get a theater built down, you know, down where the, at, the, at the Trade Center. Uh, and then they had all that difficulty with... Um, with uh, not George LaForgue, what's his name? George Steele. Steele, who's resurfaced somewhere apparently. Yeah, he's in Boston running now. Museum. That's yeah, weird. Yeah, he's in Boston. You know, it, 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 I don't know. It would be nice to think, but it certainly would be the end of, of the era. You know, which is, I don't know. It, it, it's odd because as new school, as old school as the Met is, it really was new school. Mm-hmm. You know, the Met was. You know, the, the people who were like who were Jewish, or people who were kind of like the nouveau riche in New York at the tur- around the turn of the century, couldn't go to the New York Opera Company at the Hammerstein Opera Theater. They couldn't get a box there, so they started their own company, the Metropolitan Opera Company, which was kind of like the the, the, tr- the so-called trash New York City. And then it it became you know the institution that it is now, and it, it's it it's a, it would be a very sad thing. It's it just I worry that. They can't handle this this type of press and, and this type of 
uh, you know, these problems at this moment, especially when things are so, so very tenuous. Mm-hmm. I'm going to close it out on, on this note and to repeat, Michael, what you said earlier, which was as soon as Harvey Weinstein and those allegations came out, uh, Charlie Rose all these other people in media, in entertainment, you knew that this hand would land on opera somewhere and probably it was going to go big and it was going to be at the Met. And as you said, Michael, it was probably going to be James Levine. Let me uh, just chime in a little bit here and say that um, there is um, right now this moment that we're having um, culturally, um, which is probably for the better, you know? I mean, I, I, yes, it's, I, it's great. It is, it's I think it's exactly for the better. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there are, you know, you think about, like, the Anita Hill thing, you know? Like, however many years ago, that was 20 years ago, how everybody was so quick to discredit her, you know, because they wanted Clarence Thomas to become a Supreme Court justice, and we were willing to look, overlook those things. And now people have a voice. And like Michael was saying, um, you know, a 16-year-old kid doesn't have a voice. But I do think we are now in this climate where everybody can be heard because of social media, because of, you know, the, the willingness of people to come together and speak up. And uh, to that end, uh, Anne Majette is starting something. Um, I forget exactly. It's probably Anne Majette at Wash- Washington Post. She wants to hear your stories. Uh, she's, like, put out a, a plea for everybody who knows stories and knows what's happening in the classical music world. Uh, to go ahead and and tell her, and it can be anonymous, and she's going to try to, you know, uh, expose what's happening in the classical musical world. Look, my wife was a singer for her whole adult life before she went into administration at Uh, (laughs) longbeachopera.com. So, I mean, she knows, I mean, look, there are stories she's told me, there are people, things that I have seen, and if this is the biggest story, certainly, but there are just so many just pieces of you-know-what that are working in this business mm-hmm. that are, whether they're straight, whether they're gay, who they're going after, whether they're conductors, whether they're directors, whether they're other singers. It's just... And, and a lot of it boggles me, which is a problem I have with this, I think, in, in how I haven't been more active or proactive about it, because it just it would never occur to me to behave in that manner. And I think that's a difficulty I think that some men do have uh, that people don't talk about. Because, like, how could, how could you behave in that manner? That's, it's ludicrous. And then I feel, at the same time, like I'm, I feel like, wait, I didn't do anything. But then I think, well, how could somebody do that? I can't imagine somebody would do that. So it's a, it's, it's a complicated thing, but we really need to, as I said, um, you know, sponge on the windowsill, so to speak. It, it just needs, the, the rot has to go out because it's just rotten all over the place. And every, every industry, it, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's ridiculous. It is the end of 2017. This story, it's certainly the biggest story of 2017. They saved it for the end of the year. Uh, probably the biggest opera story this decade. Is that too large a statement to make? Well, I don't know. I, I remember I, I thought to myself, oh, I'm sorry, Oliver, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Anna Dutropko does have a tea set. I think it's called Aida. No. No, that's not the biggest. It is called that, but that's... <laughs> I, mean, I, I remember I thought to myself when I stopped doing the show, like, last October, you know, there's two things that would bring me back. 
Peter Gelb getting fired or something happening with James Levine. And potentially both are not happening now. So yeah. I think it probably is the biggest story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, it, if it draws me back to opera, because yeah. I'm so far removed from it now. Michael Rice, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, Toby, George, and sweet, sweet Oliver. Mm-hmm. My <laughs> All right, buddy. We'll catch around in the background. Yeah, yeah. We'll catch you later. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I said this when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, is that the way that we intersect with huge life-changing events, at some point it will get personal. Hurricane Harvey, I had no connection to that until I looked at the damage it had done to the Houston Opera House. That was my way in. I will admit that I've been rather outside the Me Too movement, uh, the accusations of, of sexual abuse from Kevin Spacey across in this country and other countries, and I've, I've been kind of outside in. When I read these stories, this was the first moment when I felt very, very close to it. And it was so disappointing. It was so hurtful. And I'm not a victim of it. I'm, I'm nowhere near the center of it. And it was still like, man, really? Really? Has it come to this? It's so crushing. There, it's, it is crushing. And I think um, in one of the articles about it, uh, and I think it was actually, it was one of the Times articles, and it was... Um, one of the representatives from the orchestra, and she said the general emotion amongst them was a feeling of anguish. Um, Not necessarily that they were crushed, not necessarily that they were shocked, but just anguish because here's this figure who has done so much for this art form and has put it on a platform that it previously hadn't... I mean, the Met thrived under the leadership of James Levine, and... This doesn't discredit that work, but it does discredit the man. And I think there's a, it's like finding out that your dad's actually kind of a crappy human or something like that. You find that out and you wonder, well, how did, how do I feel about all the lessons that I learned? How do I feel about the way I was raised? How do I feel about the spiritual leadership, the mentorship that I had there, when in reality it was all false? Because this feels like it undermines a great leader of a great institution. Um, and so I think anguish is a great word that was used in that article. And I think you're right, George. You feel personal about this because it is something that we want. I mean, we love, you know, the Cosby show. You know, we love Michael mm-hmm. Jackson's music. You know, of course, there's just still allegations about Michael Jackson. But come on, let's be real. Like, there's a lot of allegations about him, you know. Yeah. And he's still celebrated, you know, as mm-hmm. one of the greatest artists of all time, you know. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you're thinking on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. After a quick break, we come back with Monday evening quarterback and the two-minute drill. There's lots more on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number, 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 
847-866-9687. Talk to you later. Pass or fail? Here's Monday evening quarterback. <laughs> oh man, it takes me back. I'm so pumped when I hear that yeah. music. I, Are you the... sure there's no copyright on that? No, don't say anything. It gives me the shivers, and it makes me think of um, mm. John Madden. Yeah, and um, was, it, was Al Michaels still doing the broadcast? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Al Michaels did money. Dude, I, you know what that made me? That music makes me think about sneaking TV when I was a little boy growing up <laughs> in Jackson, Nebraska. And I can still remember this game. It's crazy. 1998, the Denver Broncos at the Kansas City Chiefs, and Pete Stoyanovich kicked a 53-yard field goal to win it. I don't know why I remember that. Is that Monday Night Football theme? Monday Night Football. Okay. Bum, 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 bum. You know, you guys have given me just a great idea now and how both of you straight men are reacting to this. Maybe we should get a composer to do, like, Misa Monday Night Football, you know. <laughs> it's somebody's out there doing it. Yeah, I loved that, George. That got me all excited. You know, it's so funny. I saw uh, Exterminating Angel. It is the new opera by composer Thomas Addis, conducted by him as well. It started at the Salzburger Festspiele in 2016, and then it was at the Royal Opera House in London. Then it was at the Metropolitan Opera, the live in HD broadcast. I saw it in the Encore. Uh, Wednesday afternoon yeah. before Thanksgiving. <laughs> the uh, two Wednesdays before yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yes, I was definitely the only person younger than forty in the room. Uh, there was like six people there, and then you know, so I saw the show and and uh, was going to talk about it on on our radio show tonight. Then the Levine story broke, and I was like, can I praise? a piece of art that came out of the Metropolitan Opera in the light of these allegations. Yes. And I think I can. I think I, I think I can divorce those two things from one another. Did Oliver or Toby, did either of you guys see the show? Uh, Exterminating Angel? I still plan on seeing it okay. on whenever it comes on PBS. Okay. Or, yeah, but no, I haven't seen it. I I've heard great things about it. And I've heard bad things about it, too. It's, it's really good. It's really, really good. I'm going to say why, but first I just want to play a little clip of the Not music. Not the world's highest note. No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. In fact, <laughs> it's very difficult to find sung music clips of this show oh. on the interweb. So this is actually the interlude between Acts 1 and 2. This oh. is a, a purely orchestral piece. That sounds tonal. It's totally tonal. Now, could you hear in the background? It might have sounded a little bit like a a French horn. It's not a theremin. But that was a really good guess. It's called the Onde Martineau. And it's the instrument which, if you watch like a classic Space Invaders film from the 50s, and there's like... like, Okay. That, that was actually really good, George. Yeah. That's sort of electronic sound. So That's this instrument. How and there's do you like spell this? 
uh, ondes, so like waves in French, Martineau, which is the man who invented this instrument. Okay. And you can go watch a, a video from the Met website on how it's played. There's like two people in the whole world who know how to do it, and mm. the woman who performed it lives in like California. Like the Cold or something. And uh, uh, Thomas Addis wrote the part for her and, and brought it in. It, in one way, it's kind of hokey to hear that sort of like 50s mm-hmm. uh, UFO film thing, but in another way, it makes perfect sense with all the other music that's happening around it and, of course, the story. The story of the opera is, is based on this... Um, Surrealist film by Luis Buñuel. The characters all have Spanish names, but it's sung in English. And it's essentially about this fancy dinner party where the guests are locked in the house and they live there for, it's unclear if it's like weeks or months, but essentially they all turn into animals. And they start murdering each other and copulating with each other and they start starving and they start dehydrating. And it's about the collapse of this kind of high society only at the very end for them all to be released back into the real world. It was totally thrilling, and it's just the sort of programming I wish the Met was doing more of. Obviously, they got their hands full now, but the cast was fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Bill Burdett, Audrey Luna, of course, singing that extremely high note, which we talked about on another show. <laughs> That's all she does. Countertenor Yeston Davies. My uh, favorite. Sir John Tomlinson singing the role of the doctor. I, you know what? I just love the Met in HD broadcasts. Aww. I really do. We, we could spend a whole show arguing about if they're a good thing or a bad thing. I've always believed in them <laughs> because it allows people like me to see these shows Someone who will go to not, not even a live broadcast, an encore on a Wednesday afternoon just to see this work. I'm not going to go see anything else this year. Was there a lot of people in there? There's like 10 people there. Oh, okay. Okay? I'm not going to go see anything else because it's all crap and I don't want to see it. Even Thor Ragnarok or whatever it's called? No, Rag- no, no. Ragnarok? The Met Broadcast, Oliver. Oh. No, that's like a um, Marvel. Is okay. it Marvel or... Yeah, but I'm saying like you're, you're saying you, won't, you think all the other operas are crap. Correct. Oh, how do you qualify that based on the production, based on the cast? The production. Okay. The production. So you don't care about who's singing? Not really. Good. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> not, not really. I mean, the singers I just named, I do know of them. Yeah. And actually, there was a couple people in Exterminating Angel who I've worked with. Drink! And it was funny yes. to see them on stage. <laughs> it's been know? so long. I was getting dry over here. Hey, the Met HD wins again with this show. If you get a chance to see it on uh, great performances, Michael check says it that out. Uh, the Ades sounds like Shostakovich. I was going to say Shostakovich. Oh, well, he said actually. it first. Well, he beat me to it. <laughs> hey, it's time for the two minute drill. This just in the two minute drill. Time for everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. For more than 40 years, Dale Johnson has been immersed in the world of opera, including the past 23 years as artistic director of Minnesota Opera. That's going to change in the new year when Johnson slides into the role of creative advisor, consulting on season choices, developing works, and finding talent. After two years in the job... Sebastian Schwartz has resigned as general director of the Glyndebourne Festival in England. He said, quote, In my first encounter with a privately funded company, I have come to appreciate Glyndebourne's unique and complex business model. 
on which its success and survival are dependent. While planning the seasons up to 2021, I've realized that I feel most at home in a position which allows me to concentrate more fully on creating and executing the artistic vision of an organization. We're going to unpack that in a second. And then lastly, Holden Magdagame, who was accepted by the Glyndebourne Academy to work on his vocal technique after taking testosterone, has spoken openly about finally being accepted by the opera world as a transgender man. More on that story in a minute. And then on this day, the death of Benjamin Britten in 1976 and the premieres of Charpentier's Medea in 1693, Rossini's Otello in 1816, and Die Todesstadt by Korngold. That was in Hamburg and Cologne in 1920. That is your two-minute drill. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That's who he is, all right. That's some sweet music in that. I, uh, intro. that? Yeah. I was feeling yeah. that. You feeling that? Yeah, group? it feels a little R and B, little bit like. I made out with Oliver with my eyes. Warm up the, <laughs> warm up the oil. <laughs> um, so I just want to like get back to two minute. Uh, watch Monday evening quarterback. Because it occurred to me that I have read very, you know, uh, disparate opinions about exterminating angel, and maybe people you who, do know what disparate means, right? Uh, different, I should maybe say They're scattered. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I meant that. Okay, good. Meant, yeah, just check. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of people, I think, who are traditional, going to the opera for the singing types, didn't care for it. But then people who are really into theater, you know. That'd be me. Yeah. Like, so what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean for the future of opera? If, you know, if we want to attract new audiences, we might have to do stuff like this. Now, I haven't seen it, so maybe I would love it too. But, you know, that appeals to a different, you know, aesthetic, appeals to a different, you know, criteria of what makes good theater, you know. I, the, I, to me, it's the more the merrier kind of thing. You know, I I am of the opinion that I want to go to an opera and I want to be, I want to hear a melody. I want to hear a transcendent orchestral score. And that's what mm. I'm looking for. I like the beauty of, I like the the combination of all the different art forms and the miracle yeah. that is an actual operatic production. However, if it is the theater that will bring people in, that's great too. And that's still opera. You know, just, I don't want to go see Handel. I'm sorry. That bores me to tears. I want to see drama. I want to see singing at the maximum that the human body is capable of. That's what excites and me. And you don't think that Handel does that? In my opinion, I, it doesn't. But see, that's what's great about it. And so if it is theater that will draw more people in and make them opera lovers, I'm all for it. And that wasn't to discredit <laughs> Handel singers. I'm just saying that like that diversity of opinion and diversity of what is an opera and what is okay. presented as an opera is well, to me the most important thing. I mean, if the Met is to survive this Levine scandal and they have to have new artistic leadership, I mean, they obviously don't, they basically have cut ties with him anyway. He's just like emeritus conductor or whatever he is, you know. True. Um I think that it has to be smaller. I think that the Met cannot survive as big as it is anymore, and they might have to tear the whole thing down <laughs> and build a smaller theater or build two theaters in the space of one, you know? 
one for like grand productions and one for more, you know, cha- not chamber operas, but things that are don't need that much space. That don't you need thirty four hundred seats. Yeah. What's funny about Exterminating Angel, of course, is that Addis is also a symphonic composer, and it's scored for a massive orchestra. Yeah. And obviously, that costs money. It it takes up space. It's that's the sound world that he wanted. But there's lots of ways to tell these stories, you know. And, yeah. and to answer your question, Oliver. I want to go to the opera to be moved, and I'm not moved just by the music. Yes, that's integral to it, but I'm also moved by the theatricality of it. I'm moved by the singers, but by the theatricality and by the design. I I need all of those cylinders firing. I'm glad you said that because that's I I want to be moved too. That's why I go, you know, Mm -hmm. and different things move me, you know. And I want it to be live. That's the other thing I had to add there. We'll do it live! Well, I'm not moved by television. And I'm not okay. really moved by film hmm. because, and this is why I'm moved by sports is because for me, sports is the only thing left in our culture where we truly don't know the ending. Hmm. Even in opera, we know that an ending hmm. has been written. We may not politics? know what that ending is. Um, politics. Yes. Hmm. I, I, I could accept that point. So I would just rather speaking of, to of tell- speaking of telling stories, um, I'm really excited about this Holden, I don't want to say his name wrong, Madagame. Um, Madagame. Magda- I don't think that was right. Yeah. It was right. It was right. All right, sure. <laughs> That's how it's spelled. I listened to the man say his okay. own name. Great. Um, <laughs> I, I believe you. So the, I feel like, feel like countertenors are having a moment or have had their moment. And I think that, you know, the the current crop of countertenors, and I also tie this to the queer community, to the LGBT community, that that people are being much more open, has allowed for more countertenors to come forward, plus countertenor teachers and more repertoire being available to them, et cetera. Um, and as a result, we now have a lot more, to me, interesting you know, types of singers on the scene, singers that I'm really excited about personally. But, but, I, I, I'll give me, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So this is not the first transgender singer I've heard of. This is the first transgender singer who's like made it into like whatever the Guardian, whatever source in the independent, you know, and who maybe is in a prestigious training program and who might, you know, because he got into that has hopes for a platform to yeah. tell a story. But there have been other transgender singers who have made it into the opera news, you know, but uh, this, this is exciting. And I think, you know, like you were saying, the more the merrier. Like, I would, I'm so excited to see what types of stories we can tell with these types of voices, you know, mm. and who are the composers who are going to come forth and create unique work that really caters to their specific talents. And as one, for example, was such a moving opera. I haven't, I mean, it might be the most moved I've been at the theater all year when I saw as one in the opera. Um, and it was told by traditional voices. You know, there was a mezzo and a baritone. Very well cast, but still, it wasn't like they were doing something with the countertenors or with a transgender singer, you know. So sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to be really exciting. There are straight countertenors, right? There's a couple, yeah. Okay. But it's... <laughs> no, Justin Davies is notoriously straight. I mean, he rejected yeah. me, so I guess... He's really good in Exterminating Angel. <laughs> he's so good. By the way, I love he's, him. he's he's really good. He's yeah. a, he's a great actor. Yeah. And I mean again, this is what you get in HD is like yeah. you're you're 
standing your toes around yeah. the edge of the stage and you're you're seeing for better or for worse there's some folks that are you know chewing the scenery up there yeah. and and they're not playing to the cameras i don't think that's a criticism of the met in hd that singers are reducing their performances for the camera because i think they're good enough to know pit to pick those nights when they know it's being taped and to shrink it down and then when they know it's not to to expand it and to play it to the back of the soon to be demolished Lincoln Center theater. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hey let's uh, let's wrap this show up, all right? Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. All right. Well, uh, Turando uh, opens, I think, today uh, or tomorrow at Lyric Opera, and it has Amber Wagner, who is a local favorite. So uh, I love Amber Wagner's singing, uh, and I'm excited to see her in this role. It's a big sing, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. But I am going to read more carefully the thing that I said, uh, talked about in Chalk Talk. Uh, Classic musicians, Anne Majette is doing an important investigative piece on sexual predators in our industry, meaning the opera and classical music fields. Feel free to contact her directly at anne.majette at washpost.com. Anyone with something to share can contact her. She will keep all sources anonymous. Speaking out, speaking out about these things can be frightening, but we are on the edge of a major cultural shift. There is a substantial list of offenders and abusers being investigated, and the more victims of all genders who come forward, the more credible the piece will be and the more of an impact it can have for our industry. Feel free to pass this information along to anyone who you think would like to share. It's not just a good call. That's a great call. Tobias Wright, over to you. Um, I have a good call, and my good call is for all of the singers right now. It is audition season, and there's basically like one week left of auditions, and good luck to everybody who's doing that. You're putting yourselves out there for the sake of your art and for the sake of your livelihood. Um, And I always, I think my biggest thing is trust your sound, trust your work, trust what you've learned and what the composer gave you on the page, and make a glorious sound. I got a bad call. That's the Chicago Bears. Toby, did you watch the game? Um, I know Oliver they, did. So I actually watched you. part of it. They they lost to the one and eleven San Francisco 49ers. Is this correct? Unbelievable. Was that tonight? Just now? No, no, no. They were playing on Sunday afternoon. Oh, okay. uh, Robbie Gold, who was the former Bears place kicker, mm-hmm. kicked five field goals to beat his former team fifteen to fourteen <laughs> with four seconds left on the clock. It's good for the brand. This Bears team is so, I mean, bad. They, they cannot find a win. These guys could not find their own dingalings with two hands and a map. <laughs> That's how bad the Bears are They right got now. Mitchell Trubisky, Trubisky, Trubansky. Uh, now, the other thing I was going to say that it's a bad cause, the ch- your Chiefs have slid so far oh. since the beginning of the year, dude. What is going on? It's a free fall. It's horrible. They yeah. can't play any defense. Yeah. The offense, the offense is great one day. The special teams is great one day. The defense is great one day. But this last weekend, it was no defense. Thirty-eight points to the lowly Jets. The soon-to-be-demolished Arrowhead Stadium. <laughs> <I hope not. laughs> hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V o x e r. S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And you can always leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For co-host Tobias Wright and our guest Michael Rice, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to get your face out of your phone and continue the conversation about opera. 
We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central with our annual holiday special. Find out what's on our opera, Christmas, and Hanukkah lists. You can let us know, too, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.